Hello, everyone. This is episode 94 of the Good Mood Podcast. And today we're going to talk about insomnia, sleep hygiene, more specifically, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. So, a psychological approach to insomnia as opposed to a supplement, nutritional, biological approach. Um, so this was a presentation that I gave for my practicum group that I'm repurposing for, for YouTube and for my podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. My uh, idea, my intention is that this is a useful tool that you can implement if you're having trouble sleeping, if you're dealing with insomnia, if you're a, uh, you know, a client or a patient who deals with this, but also for other practitioners to help guide their patients and clients through cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia and some of the steps involved. So, all right, so let's take a look at the PowerPoint. So we're talking about sleep and sleep hygiene and how we treat this without any supplements. Although I will mention, because one of the frequent questions I had at the end of the presentation was things about blood sugar and supplements and things like that. So we will talk about that, um, or at least give it a mention. But the focus is, the focus is on a psychological approach to help with insomnia. So we know that sleep is an essential part of good physical and mental health. You know, when we sleep, we repair, our bodies regenerate, our memories consolidate. So this is the process of digesting and forming these memory networks that allow us to interact with our world. You know, this is partly how we process and heal from traumas through this process of memory consolidation. And in sleep, there is also this process in which our cerebral spinal fluid, the fluid in our brain, clears waste, including amyloid plaques and junk from our from our brain um, to prevent things like dementia, Alzheimer's, and, and other cognitive issues. So sleep is this really important process. If you think about the fact that we mammals, we human beings, sleep seven to nine hours uh, per 24-hour cycle, per 24-hour day and night. And that's about a third of our lives we spend sleeping. And during that time, we're vulnerable to predators. We're not searching for food. We're not procreating. And so obviously, this is a process that is extremely important to our survival and our ability to thrive, right? This is because we're not directly in the process of surviving while we're sleeping, and yet our bodies crave it. If we don't sleep, the the impulse to sleep is overwhelming and you know you might just fall asleep so this is such an essential process and that our body forces us to do it we die if we go too long without sleep and yet um you know this is something that we don't always value so insomnia is the is the lack of sleep or short sleep duration and it's a risk factor for major depressive disorder for anxiety for substance use disorders it increases our risk of suicide, and it also increases the risk of physical ailments like hypertension, diabetes, cognitive impairment, and accidents. And there is a bi-directional relationship between insomnia and mental health conditions. So this means that, you know, we know that lack of sleep, like insomnia, sleeping too much, lack of quality sleep is one of the symptoms of major depressive disorder. But 
insomnia can also contribute to worsen or potentially cause depression. So this is what we call this bi-directional relationship in which sleep and mental health conditions are sort of like a chicken egg cycle between one another. Insomnia is highly associated with depression and, and post-traumatic stress disorder. So the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, this is the Mental Health Bible, the Mental Health Diagnostic Bible. Insomnia is defined as the complaint or difficulty of falling or staying asleep and daytime dysfunction despite adequate opportunity for sleep. So you're giving yourself enough time to sleep and yet you're having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep and or you're experiencing daytime dysfunction. So there's three criteria. Difficulty falling, staying asleep, daytime dysfunction, but there's adequate opportunity for sleep. This, these symptoms have to occur for three or more days a week for three months. So less than three months, this is termed episodic or short-term insomnia, but chronic insomnia is when it's been occurring for three months or longer. And this insomnia cannot be explained by another disorder. So, you know, for example, um, uh, obstructive sleep apnea is a, is a different disorder that's different from chronic insomnia, but can cause these symptoms. Um, and then as we discussed, there's this bi-directional relationship with insomnia and depression or PTSD and other mental health conditions. So they don't fully explain why you have insomnia, although many of us may uh, cognitively interpret our insomnia like that. Like I have difficulty sleeping because I have depression, although we know that Difficulty sleeping and insomnia can worsen depressive symptoms. So the daytime dysfunction that you experience that is one of the uh, criteria for chronic insomnia is fatigue. So feeling tired during the day, reduced occupational or academic performance. So you're, you've brain fog, you're having difficulty thinking, you're having difficulty coming up with words, you're having difficulty articulating yourself, you're not performing physically or mentally well. You're experiencing mood disturbance, irritability, sadness, aggression, impulsivity, reduced motivation, proneness for errors and accidents, and concerns about and dissatisfaction with sleep. So there might be stress around going to bed. There might be stress around sleep. You might be stressed about the fact that you can't sleep or that you're waking up frequently. So how many of us experience this? Now, it's important to note that fatigue has different iterations. So we have like this fatigue, there's sleepiness where you feel like you could fall asleep at any given time. So you're imagine that you're a passenger in a car. Imagine that your kid is reading a story to you. Imagine that you're sitting on the couch reading a book. If you think you could fall asleep in these situations, then your fatigue is likely caused by sleepiness, so lack of sleep. And a lot of patients and clients will say to me, you know, I sleep enough, but I'm so tired. And so part of our, our work is to figure out, are you still sleepy? Despite sleeping enough, you know, sleeping eight hours a night, um, are you still experiencing sleepiness or is there this lack of motivation or physical fatigue that can also characterize fatigue, but it may not necessarily be related to lack of sleep. If someone's experiencing sleepiness, there's likely something going on with their ability to sleep, uh, either have restorative or, or effective sleep, 
or maybe they're not sleeping as much as they think they are. So to assess insomnia, one of the things we do as psychotherapists is look at the three P's. And I suppose it's naturopaths too. So we look at the predisposing factors, the precipitating factors, and the perpetuating factors. So predisposing factors for insomnia could be things like genetic, personality. Are you more of a restless child, an anxious child? Did you always have difficulty sleeping even as a kid? Hyperarousal. Are you generally more, you know, anxious, hyper? Are you are you generally more alert, having difficulty winding down and sleeping? Precipitating factors are these sort of new factors that worsen the underlying um, factors that might dispose you to insomnia. So stress, life changes, even positive life changes, right? Like having a baby um, or, you know, sometimes surgeries, injuries, things like that can affect our sleep. Perpetuating factors involve these maladaptive cognition, conditions, beliefs, or coping styles that perpetuate the problem. So for example, anxiety around going to bed because of this difficulty falling and staying asleep can perpetuate the insomnia. A lot of people may you know, do maladaptive coping behavior, such as this revenge bedtime procrastination that a lot of us engage in, where we don't really want to go to sleep. We want to get more things done in the evening. You know, maybe we're, we don't give ourselves enough time to wind down and fall asleep, or maybe we're drinking alcohol or wine before bed and that's helping us fall asleep, but it's keeping us awake at night because we know as our body starts to metabolize alcohol, it actually can cause maintenance insomnia where we're waking up in the middle of the night. So questions that clinicians, like your doctor, your naturopathic doctor, your psychotherapist, questions that they should ask you are, and questions that you might consider if you're just, um, you know, a patient or a client listening to this is what is your schedule? What time do you go to bed? What is your bedtime routine? So do you give yourself time to wind down? What are your wind down activities like? What time do you wake in the morning? Do you set an alarm to wake up? How long does it take you to get out of bed? How do you feel when you get out of bed? Do you feel alert and ready to get up? Do you feel like you need to keep sleeping? How long does it take the fog and grogginess to lift, if at all? How many times are you hitting the snooze? When you go to bed, how long is it taking you to fall asleep? How often are you waking up in the middle of the night? And how long does it take you to fall back to sleep when you wake up in the middle of the night? It's important to think about nocturnal behavior. So what are the activities when you get out of bed if you wake up in the middle of the night? Do you get out of bed and go do work on your computer? Or do you try to go somewhere else to wind down? Do you just lie in bed kind of tossing and turning and your mind is racing? Does your partner tell you things about how you sleep? If you have a bed partner, do you kick? Do you toss? Do you turn? I sometimes ask people if you wake up with the covers kind of tangled around you, which might indicate that you're moving a lot at night and that you're not, um, you know, resting peacefully. Does your partner tell you if you snore? What else do they tell you about the way that you sleep? And it's important to ask questions about daytime dysfunction. So how much energy do you have? Do you take naps? Do you crave naps? What is your performance like at school or work? What is your mood like? What are your motivation levels? Do you feel sleepy during the day? And so on. So, you know, tons and tons of questions. It's interesting, like I'll often, uh, you know, I've been in this practice for 10 years and I'll often get questions like, what do you do for sleep? And the you can see by the breadth 
and depth of questions that I need to ask to just even understand the problem. It's really hard to just, there's no like supplement for insomnia. You know, there are practices and, and so much of it is individualized. And so this is, you know, the important thing to, to iterate that I always want to talk about is this idea that when you're getting help with a problem, a health problem, a psychological problem, a biological problem, a social problem. There's so many factors. There's so much that's important in terms of context that it's not as simple as just one problem, one solution. We have to really understand the problem before we can help you. So for further investigation, you may complete a sleep diary. And this is an important factor for cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. You might do a sleep scale. So something like the Epworth sleepiness scale that can help determine if your fatigue is sleepiness or just you know, some other form of fatigue like low motivation or physical fatigue or exhaustion. The insomnia severity index is what they often use in research. The dysfunctional beliefs and attitudes about sleep uh, scale is interesting because it helps us identify like what are our beliefs around sleep and how may those be perpetuating factors that maintain or worsen our insomnia. The Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index is helpful, you know, to prepare people for sleep studies. When you get a sleep study done, they may ask you questions about this to understand what your sleep quality is like. And then it may be useful to get a sleep study done. If you've been struggling with insomnia for some time, if you want to identify if you have another type of, you know, condition that may be causing the insomnia. So, you know, obstructive sleep apnea is a very common one. Circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders, restless leg syndrome, periodic leg movement disorder, these things can be detected and diagnosed via sleep study. And so if you pay a trip to your general practitioner, your, your medical doctor, you can get a referral to a sleep study. And in Canada, it's covered by our um, health insurance. And so this could be a really helpful strategy to understand more about insomnia. So sleep diary is an important tool for cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. I usually don't have my patients, as a naturopath, I don't have my patients fill out this very complex sleep diary. I'll usually ask questions that cover these topics, and then I'll have people track their bedtime, their wake time, and their perceived sleep quality for a week, something simple like that, you know, meals, things like that. Um, but it is possible to do a more in-depth sleep, sleep diary. So for two weeks, you write down your bedtime. You write down the time that you turned out your lights, the time it took you to fall asleep, the time and duration of your awakenings, the time you woke up in the morning, how long it took you to get out of bed, your perceived sleep quality and duration, so how long you think you slept, what you think your sleep quality was. I usually have people rate their sleep on a scale of 1 to 10. Some people use devices like Fitbits, Aura Rings, and those can tell you, they can give you a number, usually out of 100, about your sleep quality. Those, you know, sometimes they're accurate. It can be a place to start. You can see if that matches up with your perception. You write down any naps that you had during the day, how long they were, what time you had your nap, and write down any use of sleep aids, caffeine or alcohol, the timing and the quantity. So these factors and more can be useful. If you, you know, have small children, you can talk about people that woke you up. You can talk about, you know, whether you went to the washroom, what you did when you woke up. There's so many more factors to include, but these are some good basic ones. So cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia is what we're going to be focusing on for this episode. 
it's the gold standard, which means it's the first line therapy for insomnia, which is so interesting and helpful because chances are, if you've been to your doctor for help with insomnia, you probably were prescribed some sort of medication. A study came out a few a few years ago stating that you know sleep medications should not be used any more than every two weeks, and any more than that, there was a significantly increased risk of all cause mortality, which means just like death from anything. And so these medications, you know, do they actually create sleep? Or is it sort of like, you know, if you got punched in the head and knocked out, you would wake up and you would be like, well, yeah, I was kind of like unconscious, but I I don't think I was sleeping. There's specific things happening in the brain that we talked about at the beginning of this episode that are happening when you're sleeping, right? There's these specific brain waves that are occurring, you know, delta waves, we're going into REM sleep, we're doing deep wave sleep, things are getting repaired just being unconscious is not sleep. And so a lot of sleep medications aren't actually inducing sleep. So we still are sleep deprived, but we have the perception that we're sleeping. And not all medications, of course, work this way, but it it is being emphasized that clinicians move away from medications for sleep and recommend CBTI, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia, the gold standard or the first line therapy uh, you know, according to the American College of Physicians, this is recommended that this be the first thing you're offered as a patient or a client who has insomnia. So this is a great opportunity for naturopathic doctors, for psychotherapists to help people with insomnia. And if you're a, you know, a non-professional out there, this is something you can check out for yourself and you can try to apply in your own life without going to a clinician if you can't afford one or um, can't see one. So we find from the research that CBTI has better long-term outcomes than pharmacotherapy, so medications, and it has fewer side effects. There was a meta-analysis. So a meta-analysis is the gold standard of research. It includes randomized cl- a group of randomized control trials. So these are like, you know, use a placebo. They're highly studied and controlled good quality studies, they gather a bunch of them and they draw conclusions. So they usually involve thousands of subjects and and lots of data. So this is considered the gold standard. So there was a meta-analysis in, I believe it was 2016, um, that studied 87 randomized controlled trials. And this involved 3,700 clients with 2,700 controls. And they found that CBTI improved scores on the insomnia severity index and improve sleep efficiency. So the amount of time that you're sleeping compared to the amount of time you're in bed, it improved the wake after sleep onset. So people didn't wake up after they fell asleep as often sleep onset latency. So how long does it take you to fall asleep? CBT improved that it improves subjective sleep quality. So when they asked the subjects, how do you think you slept? They reported improved sleep quality. They just felt better. They felt better rested and it improved total sleep time. So basically improved the holistic experience of sleeping and and was really effective for treating insomnia. So CBTI, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. You might've heard of cognitive behavior therapy. It's a type of therapy that looks at like our thoughts, our behaviors, our emotions, and, you know, our belief systems. But CBTI is a very behavioral oriented therapy. So it involves practices 
behavioral interventions, habit change that can shift the way we think about things. And then that further shifts our behaviors and our beliefs, which further shifts how we behave about things or how we think about things. And this improves, you know, things like anxiety, depression, CBT can be used for trauma. Um, it's a very practical form of therapy, usually short term. So in this case, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia involves four to seven sessions. And these sessions consist of practices, these five practices, sleep hygiene, relaxation exercises, stimulus control, sleep restriction, and cognitive restructuring. And these five things help provide the results that we talked about in the last slide. Improve sleep quality, improve sleep duration. So sleep hygiene is something you might have heard of. Hopefully you've heard of it. It's the idea of, you know, creating good, healthy sleep practices. So I have a huge list here on this slide, but you probably don't need to do absolutely everything. People always ask about this, right? Because some of these things can be expensive, cumbersome, time consuming. So you don't need to do, you don't need to have perfect sleep hygiene. Sleep hygiene, you can think of as having a collection of habits that you do to support your sleep. And the more habits you stack, potentially the the better outcomes you'll experience, but it doesn't mean that you have to do every single thing. The more things you stack though, the more you, you know, are uh, habits you have in the spirit of good, healthy sleep, the better. So for example, keeping how your bedroom is, is important for good sleep hygiene. So keeping your bedroom dark, cool, calm, quiet, and you can hear sirens going off outside my window. And so you can use tools like eye masks, weighted blankets, earplugs, cooling mattresses, keeping your room temperature to 18 degrees. So as we enter fall and winter, this is a lot easier, you know, keeping windows open using fans. If you experience hot flashes or night sweats because you're perimenopausal or, or you're in menopause, this is something that you might want to work with your naturopathic doctor on, is getting your body temperature down. Things like melatonin can help bring body temp down, although there's a bit of a double-edged sword with using too much melatonin to go to sleep. So thinking about how your bedroom is set up, right? Is it dark, so dark that you can't see your hand in front of your face? If it's not, you might use an eye mask or you know a, a cut-up t-shirt or a handkerchief over your eyes. Is your bedroom cool or is it too warm? Can you turn on fans? Can you open windows? Do you have access to air conditioning if you live in a warm climate? Is your bedroom calm? Does it feel peaceful? Is it a place you want to go to, to relax and, and chill out in? Is it is it clean? Like, does it feel comfortable and safe? And is it quiet? You know, is there outside noise? Are there things that disrupt your sleep, wake you up? And what can you control around that? Can you wear earplugs? Um, things like weighted blankets, cooling mattresses can be really helpful tools, but absolutely not necessary. You also want to avoid certain substances. So avoid alcohol, especially before bed, avoid caffeine three to four hours before bedtime, avoid nicotine and vigorous exercise three to four hours before bedtime. So giving yourself a nice wide window where you're not consuming any substances or engaging in activities that might affect your sleep. Now, there's a lot of people who will ask me like, well, the only time I have to exercise is, you know, before bed 
or I'm on a team where we meet up before bed. And so what's better, just not exercising and not having the social life or getting better sleep. So this is, you know, something that really depends on the individual, right? And the idea is if you have, a, you know, maybe you have to work harder in other areas of sleep hygiene, if there are specific um, habits and behaviors that you can't get around or can't avoid. Maybe you need to avoid vigorous exercise three to four hours before bedtime temporarily while you get your sleep back on track. It really depends how badly the insomnia is affecting your life and, and, you know, and what your daytime dysfunction is. So yeah, you might be able to get away with exercise three to four hours before bedtime. It might be what works for you. Um, and maybe this is something you need to change even temporarily. So it totally depends on the individual. And that's why there's no sort of one size fits all solution for any of these things. It's really important to do a wind down routine before bed. And I usually recommend people do 30 to 60 minutes before bed. Maybe you set an alarm to kind of jog your memory, to remind you, to orient you to the time. And then in that time, you might take your nighttime supplements. So you might take your magnesium, you might engage in calming activities, relaxing activities, avoiding electronics, of course. So turning off your blue lights, dimming the lighting in your environment. So putting on maybe candles or peripheral lighting or soft lighting. Maybe you put blue light blocking glasses on if you can't change the lighting. Maybe you drink your herbal tea, so you have your sleepy time tea or your chamomile tea or your valerian root, or you take your herbs or whatever your nighttime supplements are um, that you might be prescribed by your naturopathic doctor. And, you know, you don't necessarily need to like meditate or do your stretching or these really um, sort of characteristic bedtime activities. Sometimes it's just the intention, right, that you're saying, okay, it's time for me to get ready for bed. I'm going to do my bedtime, my activities that signal bedtime, whether that's putting my clothes up for the next day, doing my skincare routine. It's sort of this calming, you know, intentional, you're, you're, you're thinking about these activities as a way that you signal to your body and brain that you're going to go to bed. Maybe you write, in a journal, get your worries out of your mind. You know, oftentimes we go through the day in go, go, go mode. You know, you have family obligations, you have work, you have your extracurricular activities, you have your, you know, cooking and cleaning, you clean up your dinner and then it's time for bed. And so we're doing, doing, doing all day. And as soon as we lie down, that's when our brain is like, okay, great. Now we can process the day. So having a bit of a window where you allow your brain to purge if that's what it needs to do. You think about the day ahead and prepare for it. Maybe you, you know, wind down the day that you've just had. Um, I know that in Waldorf education, there's this practice that Waldorf teachers are told to do in which they lie down and they go through the events of the day in chronological order from end to beginning. It's like a way to kind of just, you know, reflect on the day, think about what you've done and and transition to sleep. So, you know, it's when when you have a, babies or children, we all know that they don't just fall asleep when you put them down. There's a, a rhyme and a reason, a process, transitional activities, and then as soon as we become adults, somehow we don't think that we need these things. But you know, just like you can't just shove food in your face and expect that your digestive system will be ready for this food we can't just expect that we're going to lie down and go to sleep. I mean, we might, and some people can, 
But if you're dealing with insomnia, it's unlikely that you'll be able to do this. And so we need to get your body and brain into a place where they, they anticipate sleep and they expect it and they get ready for sleep. So the second part of cognitive behavior therapy is relaxation activities. So these are things that help your body and brain release tension. They can be really helpful for falling asleep and for falling back asleep if you wake up in the middle of the night. So they can be simple exercises. They can be things that your psychotherapist, your naturopathic doctor teach you. They can be things that you do in the daytime to manage anxiety or to relax. So deep breathing, diaphragmatic breathing, you breathe into your belly. So these there's various techniques. Usually they involve slow exhales, um, taking deep inhales into the belly and just focusing on the breath. I really like progressive muscle relaxation, particularly if you feel physically restless and tense, if you have muscle pain from tension. So progressive muscle relaxation or PMR is this process where you lie down or you sit down. You can be in any position really, but lying down is a nice position to be in for this. You go through your body, you know, starting with your toes and you clench, 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 clench the muscles in your toes as hard as you can. And if you feel like you could clench a little bit more, if you can tighten the muscles in your toes a little bit more, you go for it and you tighten, 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 tighten the muscles, squeeze them as tight as you can. And then you exhale and you relax. Then you go to your feet. That may also include your toes and you clench, 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 tighten, tighten, tighten the muscles in your feet as, as much as you can. And then you relax. And then you go to your calves. Tighten, 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 tighten. Contract your muscles in your calves and your shins and your whole lower leg. And then you release. And so you slowly go up your entire body. You can do this in tiny increments. So toes, bottom half of the feet, top half of the feet, like kind of the ankles, then the shins. Or you can just do kind of like lower leg, thigh, torso, you can do whole parts of the body, depending on how much time you have or your level of patience. This is something you can do while you're working. If you have tense shoulders, you can tense, tense, tense your shoulders and relax them. And what this helps to do is just release your baseline levels of tension that you carry throughout the day. Um, can be really helpful for pain. It's something that is done for PMS, PMDD, migraines. These are all really, uh, uh, conditions that respond really well to progressive muscle relaxation. So this is something you can do at night. Uh, there's YouTube videos that can guide you through this. Um, but this is something you can also guide yourself through. Visual imagery is great. You know, having um, meditation or relaxation exercises that you do. One of my favorites is yoga nidra. I recommend this a lot. And there are tons of YouTube videos with free yoga nidra guided meditations so yoga nidra is not the physical practice of yoga where you're doing postures and yoga poses. You're doing this in a lying down position and it involves um, a little bit of hypnosis and, um, and body scans. And yoga nidra is helping your brain get into this theta wave state, which helps it transition into delta wave. Um, Andrew Huberman calls yoga nidra, he has a version of it called non-sleep deep rest that's been shown to help with daytime function, memory, cognitive performance, and actually helps, it actually does achieve that brainwashing thing that we talked about that sleep achieves. So 
I like to look at yoga nidra as sort of the next best thing to sleep. And so if you're awake, we'll talk about the other facets of cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia, but yoga nidra achieves not just relaxation, but it also helps with cognitive restructuring and stimulus control. So it has other facets that can make it helpful um, for sleep, for dealing with insomnia. So if you're waking up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep, it may be a great idea to do yoga nidra because not only can it help you relax, and if you you aren't sleeping during that half hour to an hour that you're doing yoga nidra, you're doing the next best thing to sleep. And that can also give you that peace of mind that, you know, even if I can't sleep, at least I can do this. And that might set me up for having a better day tomorrow morning. And that may really relieve the anxiety you have around sleep, which as we know, can worsen our insomnia, right? If you're lying awake, worrying about how you can't sleep, it's literally impossible to fall back asleep. And we get in this vicious cycle. So yoga nidra can be a fantastic practice to do to solve these problems. Stimulus control is the uh, one of the practices of cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia that um, is based on the idea that if you pair the bedroom with fear, arousal, anxiety, and frustration, it leads to worsening insomnia. So how many of us lie down in bed and then feel anxious or wide awake? So after many months or many nights of insomnia and difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, the bedroom itself, the stimulus of lying in bed can trigger anxiety and that can prevent sleep. And then the vicious cycle occurs. So stimulus control is the act of uncoupling the stimulus of the bedroom with the response of anxiety, fear, frustration, and arousal. And so it's sort of like Pavlov's dog, right? Pavlov, he had an experiment where every time he gave dogs food, he rang a bell and their mouths would salivate because they were anticipating the food. Then he found he could pair the stimulus of the bell ringing and and, and elicit the response of salivation without the food um, as an intermediary, right? So sometimes just lying in bed causes anxiety, even if you might have been able to sleep. And so this is why it's so difficult to treat, especially maintenance insomnia, because it's not habitual. It's not necessarily within our realm of voluntary control, right? The dogs couldn't control if they salivate when they hear a bell ring. It was just an involuntary response. But over time, if you stop pairing food and the bell, the dogs will stop salivating when they hear a bell. Same is true with stimulus control. If you create better associations with lying down in bed, it no longer, lying down in bed no longer elicits fear, anxiety, and arousal, and it's easier to fall asleep. So this is done by restricting the use of the bed to just sleep and sex. So no working in your bed, no playing cards, no hanging out in bed, um, just using your bed for when you want to go to sleep and sex. So very strict use of your bed. Now, if you're falling asleep and you're not, you're going to bed and you're not able to fall asleep within 10 to 20 minutes, or if you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't fall asleep within 10 to 20 minutes, what we want to do is get out of bed. Okay. It's great to, for this practice to have an area in your house, whether it's a chair, a yoga mat on the floor, 
you know, a quiet area that you can get to safely without turning on lights to go and relax. And this is helping you relax away from the stimulus of your bed so that you're not lying awake in bed, worried about how you can't sleep, tossing and turning. So we call this like the sleep cubby or sleep corner. So you have your yoga mat with cushions, your meditation corner, all set up and ready to go, or your comfy chair, even the couch. You go lie down in this area and you wait until sleepiness returns. So during this time, while you're in your sleep corner, you can do your relaxation exercises. You can read in dim lighting. You don't want to turn on electronics, but maybe you have your Yoga Nidra audio or your YouTube uh, video for Yoga Nidra ready to go. And then you quickly turn it on and put your phone face down as you do Yoga Nidra. Um, And so then you go to your sleep corner. And then once you feel sleepy again, ready to fall asleep, you go back to bed. Now, if you can't fall asleep, so let's say you go back to, you're feeling overwhelmingly sleepy, you go lie down in bed and then you wake up again, like you feel alert again, you go back to your sleep corner and you do your relaxation exercises. So you can imagine that in this process of stimulus control, you might not be getting a lot of sleep. Uh, so, But it's important to be patient and trust this process because the idea is that when you lie in your bed, it's keeping you awake. Just the stimulus of your bed is keeping you awake. So um, we're trying to remove that connection to arousal, anxiety, frustration with your bed and associate lying down in bed with an overwhelming need for sleep so that you fall asleep. You also want to wake up at the same time every morning, even on weekends. So this might involve setting an alarm And you want to aim to get out of bed within 10 to 15 minutes of waking. So no lingering in bed, no reading in bed in the mornings, um, watching TV in bed. Um, Alarm goes off at the time you need to wake up during the week, seven days a week. um, And then you aim to get out of bed within 10 minutes. So maybe one or two hits of the snooze button and then get out of bed. So partly um, connected to stimulus control is sleep restriction. So sleep restriction is based on the idea that excess time in bed causes conditioned arousal and fragmented sleep. And so this is when similar thing, when you're lying in bed and unable to sleep, um, again, it's creating this negative stimulus control and that's further affecting sleep. So in order to practice sleep restriction, and not everybody needs to use all of these tools in cognitive behavior therapy, you might find that sleep hygiene gets you, uh, improves your sleep. You might find that, um, you know, keeping a sleep diary and noticing a couple things that you could improve is helping your sleep. You might notice that stimulus control is really helpful for sleep and that you only need to really do that for a month or so. And now your sleep is in a good place. So not everybody needs to do sleep restriction. I would say sleep restriction is probably the more invasive of these practices. Uh, It's not something I typically use very often, but it's a tool we can use nonetheless. And you can imagine that this could be really helpful because if you're lying in bed at night and you're not tired, what we can do is build up sleep pressure by shortening the time that you're lying in bed to to increase your sleep efficiency. So that means that the amount of time you're lying in bed, the majority of it is spent sleeping as opposed to lying there. And this can be done with sleep restriction. So that, and this is 
helpful for stimulus control because it, your brain associates lying in bed with sleeping. So you first start off by keeping a sleep diary and you calculate your sleep efficiency. So this is the time that you lie in bed divided by the total time that you're asleep. Sorry, the time that you're asleep divided by your time in bed times 100. So if you are asleep for six hours, but you're lying in bed for nine, you divide six by nine and then you get and times 100, you get 67%. So if you're lying in bed for six hours, or if you're sleeping for six hours and you're lying in bed for nine, you're only, you only have a 67% sleep efficiency. And what we're trying to get you to is an 85% or higher sleep efficiency. So that 85% of the time you're lying in bed, you are asleep. And what this does is builds up sleep pressure and provides stimulus control. So if you are like this person who has a 67% sleep efficiency, who's going to bed at, you know, 11 o'clock at night and, and then getting out of bed at 8am, but is only sleeping for, um, for eight hours or sorry, for six hours, then you're going to restrict the sleep window. Okay. So you probably want to maintain the time that you're awake, that you have to wake up. Maybe that is because you have to get to work. So you keep that consistent and you move your bedtime. So in the example I used, the person that goes to bed at 11, but gets out of bed at 8 a.m., but is only sleeping for six hours of that time, would move their bedtime by um, three hours. So they would actually go to bed at 2 a.m. and then still get up at 8. Or another example would be going to bed at midnight and waking up at 6 a.m. That's when you have to wake up. So you're restricting your sleep window to six hours to build up that sleep pressure. So you can imagine that you'll be very tired, but you'll start to sleep really quickly. Like you'll be so tired that as soon as you go to bed, you'll be asleep and will shorten the um, sleep latency. Once you're sleeping for 85% of that time, you can start to move your bedtime earlier. So 11.45, always maintaining that 85% sleep efficiency, right? So I hope that makes sense. Now, we want to avoid restricting sleep less than five hours because it's dangerous. It, you know, increases daytime dysfunction that can affect our work, our mood, and it can leave us prone to accidents, um, issues with driving. So that is something you don't want to do. You don't want to be sleeping for less than five hours. And if you have bipolar disorder, or if you're working with a client or patient with bipolar disorder, you want to avoid doing sleep restriction because sleep restriction can actually increase in uh, mania. And this is a well-known fact. So people with bipolar disorder who have to work night shifts, who pull all-nighters, who do uh, you know transoceanic flights across time zones, this is a these are real triggers for bipolar manic episodes that can um that can be really dangerous and and um and uh damaging to the person. Um this is something you know in post in the postpartum stages where there's sleep uh, uh deficiency this can also increase mania. So there's something that you definitely don't want to do if you have you know, a history of mania, if you have bipolar disorder, if you're working with somebody who has this condition. So cognitive restructuring is uh, the last, the last tool. 
Cognitive restructuring is a feature of cognitive behavior therapy in general. It's the idea that we ha- may have maladaptive beliefs about ourself, our future in the world, and these are um, creating, you know, maladaptive thoughts, behaviors, and furthering, reinforcing these beliefs. So I might have a belief that I'm a failure. And then every time I I don't do well or don't succeed as well as I hope, I attribute that to this belief that I'm a failure. And then maybe I don't study as hard, right? Because why would I study hard if I think I'm a failure and I'm going to fail no matter what? I wouldn't study as hard. So then it sets me up for further failures. And then I think I will always fail. You know, I think the world believes I'm a failure. You know, no one will ever love me, et cetera. So restructuring beliefs is looking at different evidence, looking at different um different facts on the ground to help change our perceptions and slowly change these beliefs we have about self, future, the world. So we may have maladaptive beliefs about sleep. For example, we may have unrealistic expectations that we fall asleep immediately. Even if we've only given ourselves five hours sleep opportunity, we stay asleep. We wake up feeling completely refreshed and amazing. Um, you know, We never have any issues and any tiny thing that we have going wrong is a bad sleep. We might expect that we never wake up in the middle of the night when we know that as we age, we spend less time sleeping. Our sleep efficiency goes down. And it's it's normal to wake up, maybe to go to the washroom, to reposition, um, to check on your kids. And, and as long as you can fall back asleep and you're still getting seven to nine hours a night, this may not be a problem. But we might be really upset about this idea that we're still getting up to go to the washroom. And we expect that we should just be like totally knocked out and wake up when our alarm goes off. Um, We might have catastrophic thinking about sleep loss. So we might think, you know, if I don't get enough sleep, I'm going to be totally useless the next day. And that creates the, the, the symptoms that creates more anxiety. There was actually a study that when people had sleep trackers that told them they had a bad night's sleep, they felt more tired. So they woke up thinking that they slept fine. They looked at their sleep tracker and saw that they had a terrible sleep. And then that affected their uh, perceived energy levels throughout the day and vice versa. And I've, I've seen this happen to me before. Where I actually feel great. And then I look at my sleep tracker and it told me I had a terrible sleep. And then I don't feel as great. Or I start to question you know, how, how well I'm feeling um, and vice versa. I might think I slept terribly. I look at my sleep tracker. It told me I slept great. And I think, okay, you know, all right, maybe I'm more rested than I thought. So what we want to do to help cognitively restructure is, is anyone working in a CBT capacity, as you look at evidence for and against these beliefs from your perspective, the client, the person who's dealing with insomnia. So, you know, is was there a time that you only got three hours of sleep because you had a terrible night, but you did okay that day, you know? Um was there a time that you woke up in the middle of the night to go to the washroom and actually you had a pretty good sleep? You were able to fall back asleep and it was fine. Now, maybe your bedroom was too hot, but you still slept fine. Maybe you had a less than optimal sleep situation, like you were on an overnight bus or in an airplane and you slept okay. So we're looking at like, you know, exceptions to the rule um, to create a little bit of cognitive flexibility for this restructuring process. Tools to reduce worry can be really helpful, right? So yoga nidra is really helpful because if you're unable to fall asleep, but then you're doing 40 minutes of yoga nidra or non-sleep deep rest, it can offer many benefits of sleep. And this can help you tell yourself, you know what, I'm doing, you know, I'm doing the next best thing. So if I don't fall asleep from doing this, at least I'm 
you know, resting my brain and body and in- increasing the chances that I'll feel better the next day and be and have less daytime dysfunction. So this can help to restructure, you know, your beliefs around sleep or what you do in the middle of the night can reduce catastrophic thinking and it can help give you a tool, something to do to respond. There's a really great exercise I'm having people do now. It's called the constructive worry exercise. Before you go to bed, you write down three or more problems that you think will prevent you from sleeping. So you might be like, you know, I'm worried that my dog will wake up and cry. Um, I'm worried that, you know, I'll wake up and worry about work the next day because I have to get passport photos taken and I have to uh, have to get get up really early, early to do that. I'm worried that I won't get to work on time. There'll be traffic. I'm worried that this presentation won't go well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And think of all the things that you think will keep you up awake or keep you up at night or keep you keep your mind racing. You list all these problems. And then for every problem, you write the next step towards the solution. Okay, so if my dog wakes up, so I'm gonna take my dog out to pee before bed, but if he wakes up, I'll just take him out to pee, you know, in the middle of the night really quickly and then go back to bed. Um, you know, if, uh, okay, I'm going to set my alarm, I set two alarms. So I know to wake up early for the passport photos and it'll be fine. You know, I'm going to review my presentation notes before I give it the the next morning. Um, I'm going to tell myself that I know what I'm talking about. So you just write the next one step towards the solution for every problem you have, then you fold up the paper and you put it away. And so if you wake up in the middle of the night and you think, oh crap, my presentation all you have to do rather than thinking it through and worrying about it and you know going through all the things is you just think you you can just remind yourself that you've written down the next step of the uh, the next solution to the problem you've already taken steps to resolve it and that's all you can do and so you're unlikely to be solving this problem in the middle of the night you've already taken steps to solve the problem and you know, this may allow you to fall back asleep, right? So like you're having issues with your partner or your kids. You just think, okay, tomorrow I'm going to talk to them or tomorrow I'm going to call the doctor or I'm going to find them. I'm going to do a Google search to find them a therapist or whatever it is, whatever the next step is towards solving the problem, you write it down. And then you just remind yourself that you've, you don't even have to remember what that step was. You just know it was written down somewhere. So this can be really, really helpful, right? Because in that groggy, mind racing state where we're, 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 our prefrontal cortex is not fully online, right? We're not actually effective problem solvers in the middle of the night. And so this is like our, our mind is racing. We're not thinking clearly. We're not, we don't have our full faculties and we're not able to cognitively process our worries and, and solve our problems. Um, and so, but they can still keep us awake. So doing this exercise can be really helpful for preventing that, for breaking the cycle of worry and insomnia. So if you're interested in this topic, I love the book, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. And if you want to get a book that has uh, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia or worksheets that guides you through the process, you can check out the book, Say Goodnight to Insomnia by Greg D. Jacobs. Um, and the Matt Walker podcast is fantastic. I love that. I love the Andrew Huberman podcast for sleep. Um, Matt Walker's been interviewed on, on like all the big podcasts, but he's a great, he's very charismatic, very like uh, user-friendly scientist that talks about sleep and his book, Why We Sleep is fantastic. 
and I have a couple slides of references. So I got a lot of questions when I gave this presentation and it was about, they were about things like, you know, what can I do to fall asleep in terms of supplements? And so we talked about things like magnesium. That's my number one favorite supplement to help with sleep. Um, I don't want to get into prescriptions and things like that because it's so individualized and the prescriptions, I mean, definitely having a magnesium deficiency, which is very common, um, will will definitely impact our ability to relax and sleep and you know our cortisol levels at night. Um, biologically, a couple things could be the culprit for maintenance insomnia. You know, things like having cortisol spikes in the middle of the night, so a dysregulated circadian system, you know, uh, adrenal dysfunction due to chronic stress can be a culprit. So things like magnesium, the wind down routine, routine, and maybe herbs that support our stress response could be helpful. Another major reason for maintenance insomnia, so waking in the middle of the night, is blood sugar imbalances. So when we are unable to maintain our blood sugar throughout the night, as our liver is in charge of keeping our blood sugar steady for the eight hours that we're asleep. If our body is unable to to do that. So we have insulin resistance and we have liver issues or we're processing alcohol or chemicals from our environment or hormones because we're in various stages of our menstrual cycle and we have larger level or higher levels of hormones at certain stages. If we're in the process of doing other things with our liver, then maintaining glucose levels, our glucose levels may fall throughout the night and in order to manage our glucose levels, our body will release cortisol. And so we'll wake up, but we may not perceive the we may not perceive the low glucose levels as hunger or uh, a need to eat. Because once our cortisol has been released, our blood sugar is now in balance. And so all you might feel like is I'm wide awake or I'm just, you know, I'm alert and I feel like I'm ready to get out of bed. So our body releases cortisol in the morning as part of our awakening, awakening response. If your body's releasing cortisol between the hours of 2 to 4 a.m., you're going to feel wide awake in the middle of the night. Um, and so this is something that we'll work on with patients is we'll make sure that their circadian rhythms are in balance, that they're releasing cortisol when they want to wake up, 7 a.m., 8 a.m., and that their cortisol levels are are being suppressed or um, being lowered at bedtime through things like magnesium, herbs like relora, ashwagandha, um, reishi, things like that, and and that that supports their mel their body's natural melatonin release. Sometimes melatonin is a useful tool, not for everyone, and um, and often um, we're working yeah with a lot of these cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia tools. Um, we're looking at blood sugar regulation. We're looking at digestion, liver function. In Chinese medicine, the liver is active from 1 to 3 a.m. So if you're waking up from 1 to 3 a.m., if you're dealing with PMS, with bloating, with irritability, with migraines behind the eyes, um, with skin issues, maybe there is an issue with the liver. And not necessarily in the like clinical sense where you have liver issues that you're going to find in an ultrasound. But we know that fatty liver is quite a common condition that is associated with insulin resistance and sometimes anxiety. So 
we're as naturopathic doctors looking at that, at those biological components that could affect our sleep. We're treating that. We're using cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia to treat the psychological aspects and environmental aspects. And, and even to some extent, the social aspects of, uh, that might be contributing or causing or further maintaining our insomnia and preventing us from sleeping. So this is called the biopsychosocial approach. This is what I adhere to as a naturopathic doctor and as a psychotherapist is looking at the whole person, treating the individual, doing a proper thorough assessment, really getting to know the person. We're not, if someone comes to me for sleep, we're not just talking about sleep. We'll also really dive into energy, digestion, immune function, what you're eating, how much exercise you get, when you get it. We, we spend 90 minutes going through all of the information we can gather so that we can come up with the holistic plan, looking at all the moving parts and understanding, you know, how these symptoms fit within your context and how to treat them. And then you get a plan that's aimed at resolving all of your symptoms. A lot of the time people will come to me, they'll say like, you know, I have so many things going on. I have bloating. I, I can't sleep. I have PMS. I have really heavy periods. I get headaches. I have pain. And some of those things, there could be things that are unrelated. You know, maybe you changed your laundry detergent and then you have a rash and that's purely the reason that you have a rash. But very often I'll tell them, you know, you actually don't always have 10 different things going on. You might just have one thing going on. You might, it might be non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that's causing all of these things. Um, and that's the thing that we need to, to first focus on. You might have a magnesium deficiency causing the majority of these things. You know, you might have just a few things going on that are manifesting as all of these symptoms. But what we do know is that you are one person, one ecosystem, one body. And so if all of these things are happening within the context of your ecosystem, we know that they're very likely connected or they're at least interacting with one another. And so my goal as the ND is not just to isolate each symptom and treat each one separately, but to look at you as a whole person. This is the idea of treat the individual, treat the person, not the disease. So let me know if you have questions about this. This was my insomnia podcast. Let me know, have you tried cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia? Did it work for you? Do any of these practices stand out to you? And let me know how it goes. And if you have any questions, you live in Ontario, you want to work one-to-one with me, reach out. If you have questions, um, if I get enough questions, I might do a follow-up podcast to uh, answer some of those questions. So let me know what you think, and I hope to see you all soon.